Welcome to Inclusionism. It is Sunday. It's 5.32 and 50 seconds in the p.m. I'm your host, James Felton Keith. Uh, welcome to another Sunday. This is the show that we like to say um, individuals are at their best when they identify with the community, and communities are only at their best when they identify all of their individuals. And um, per that nerdy stance, we are blessed with two really interesting guests who um, I'm probably oversimplifying and saying that they try to identify everything on the planet as they are educators in the space of digital humanities. And they recently edited uh, a book together called Debates in Digital Humanities, and that's Matthew Gold and Lauren Klein. Do I need to throw the middle initials in there? That's you don't okay. do the, yeah. the F or the K? Only on the internet. Only on the internet. Okay, <laughs> right. So, Lauren, thanks for, for joining us. And Matt, thanks for joining us. Do you do Matt? Thanks. Matt is great. Thanks. Okay. It's a pleasure to be here. So let me just bio you guys up really quick um, before. And folks, we'll put more of this on the website. But um, Lauren is down at Emory right now. She's an associate professor in the Department of English and quantitative theory and methods. So it's interesting to think about, you know, the quantification, uh, if that's a way to simplify English and or the English language. And Matthew is here at CUNY, but uh, on a different campus at the Graduate Center and also a professor of digital humanities, uh, uh, scholarly communication, et cetera, et cetera, open access pedagogy, which reads interesting it'd be interesting to tumble down that rabbit hole a bit more sure. but um before we get into that and before we get into the book that you are recently published um can either one of you just define digital humanities for us is that it is that a thing do you have to do that often we we get asked to do it often oh you do um, yeah because it's People a, go, it's a relatively that? new term um Digital humanities involves the use of technology to do the work of humanities. Um, mm. And humanities involves the arts, philosophy, um, history, literature. So any time, basically what it is, is, you know, if you think back to, you know, days of high school and college and uh, when you were reading books in classes, uh, now we have computers all around us, and sure. the question is, how can we use computers to do that work? So sometimes it involves using digitized text and, and running quantitative uh, computational software across them to find patterns. Yeah. Sometimes it involves creating digital editions of books. But all of it involves centrally the work of the humanities, which often involves asking questions about what does this mean? How is meaning made here? Um, how do we interpret it? So as opposed to other kinds of work with computers where often we're seeking definitive answers. And, um, you know, the work of humanities often involves complicating things and asking sure. why and how things are the way they are. Sure. It's like the, the eight-year-old, three-year-old of, of, of academia. There's a lot of whys. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. On top of whys. Yep. Um, okay. Okay. So w one quick thing. The book you all wrote or edited is... Um, it's pretty large. So it's not, I assumed it was a textbook when we got it. And I think folks, when we were off air, I just mentioned, I was like, oh, this is a textbook. But it's, it's not? This isn't like the thing you all use in class? Well, it, it does get used in many classes. Sure. But, I mean, really, we, you know, the first edition was published in 2012. There was mm -hmm. another one that came out in 2016 and then 2019. Each yeah. one has been different. And the idea behind the series is really that as technology gets used more and more in universities, there are all kinds of debates that come up around them, and we wanted to sure. track those tensions and issues as they came up. Sure. Well, I mean, this book is by far the, well, maybe the second coolest. Uh, Making Things and Drawing Boundaries has a really cool cover. Mm -hmm. But um, anyway, this one, looks, <laughs> this one looks good. And you have a whole, like a website, so there's a whole thing going on. I have to admit, half of this is a bit of a hack, so I'll publish a series called um, uh, The Ethics of Personal Data Collection, and we're always looking for more authors or more people who want to create in, in series that we want to push out there. Uh, half of my work is I have some really strong beliefs about the digitization of everything, mm -hmm. and really even non-digital data, which I don't think a lot of people consider to be data. And I need there to be more scholarly work 
to be referenced for more case law mm. to make the arguments that I eventually want to make around not only um, the the ethics of data, but the economics of data. So, you know, I need legions of people like writing around the clock so that we have enough reference points um, so that I can sue more people <laughs> as a politician. That's, yeah, essentially what I want to do. Well, yeah. One of the things, I mean, we that we're very lucky to be working with the University of Minnesota Press, and which yeah. is publishing these books both in print and open access. So open access means that it's basically just out there on the internet. Mm. And we're using a publication platform, a new one called Manifold, to publish this stuff. So oh, basically, you know, all the books are published in print, but anyone can access the full books online as well and comment on them and, and stuff like that. So it's it's in, in that, that sense, it's really great because if anyone wants to teach any of these chapters or read any of these chapters, they could just go to the website and check it out. Well, I, I, yeah, so the website looks great, which I didn't even expect to see at first. But um, so well, let's tumble down like into into the book. Um, it's difficult to know where to start because there's so many authors here. And while I would love to know the process w with which you all pulled in authors, I think Per this show, we normally talk about exclusion mm -hmm. and how we remedy the ills of it. So in this book, while there are a lot of different, you know, topical subject matter expertise, I think we should just talk about the sort of the hierarchy of oppression, right? So we'll talk about, like, women first and brown people next and then, like, data in general after. Um, so... Lauren, aside from this, I was just sort of geeking out on Twitter over mm -hmm. you and another co-author. Not to take the subject away from this, but will you have another book coming out called, is it Data Feminism or Feminism in Data? It's or? called Data Feminism. Oh, yeah. just those yeah. two? Yeah. That seems like a t-shirt. Like, you all could totally, like, merch that whole thing out. <laughs> uh, have you thought about that? We haven't, but that's a great idea. So yeah. the book's coming out in March. So, uh, I'm talking about trucker hats, everything. You'll get a commission. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would love that. I, mean, I would just love to wear one. I'm, I, I'm in the market for new stuff. <laughs> So you, you wrote that, how much, I know that you're not the author of, well, let me make sure, of this first chapter, but, oh wait, no, you're not, it's a different, oh, it's just Laura. Yeah, no, we've got similar That's names. Different. Yeah, similar name. But, um, so let's talk a bit about sort of gender, data analytics, data collection, cultural analytics, and sort of bias. I think I wrote something I really didn't plan to write on on Twitter earlier when I realized you were publishing this book. A, a good friend of mine that I've published a few op-eds with, uh, she's a lawyer, has some strong opinions about data and personhood mm -hmm. in this era. We actually wrote an op-ed in the Detroit News years ago uh, relating personhood to personal data. And she, you know, she previously, previously ran uh, Harvard Law's Alumni Association and the Women's Association before that. And she told me... Uh, a while ago, as I was moving in sort of activism and politics, that she and a lot of women that she knows who are prominent and have opinions and you know have been in the labor labor movement, et cetera, have come off of Twitter because they've been attacked for having opinions in general. I, as uh, a black and blue suit wearing guy every day who feels like the whole world should listen to me, which is why I'm on the radio right now. I've never experienced anything like that. And so it sort of opened my eyes to, you know, you know what, what she says was real. So not to say that that's a, a part of this chapter, but um, what are some of these sort of trials and triumphs in data analytics around, around gender in general? Yeah, it's such a good question. I mean, I think, you know, if I could back up and just say sort yeah. of the our starting point, I think both for this book and for the other book that I work on, which mm. is that data and technology are really powerful, right? Yeah. You know, you can do, they're, they're in effect sort of forms of power, right? Um, sure. And with any form of power, you can use it for good and you can use it for evil, right? Sure, you can. Um, yeah. And so the question then becomes, you know, I think both sort of what are the ways in which data and technology, these things are sort of being wielded, unequally in the world and mm. right now sort of being used to increase inequality and power differentials. And then the sort of the mm. flip side to that is like as academics, as really privileged people who get to sort of sit in our offices and think all the time and mm -hmm. write books like this, you know, what can we do? Sure. Right. You know, because one of the things that we study is how power works and, you know, what are the different forces of power and how they intersect. Um, 
And so, you know, both in writing this book and writing that other book, um, and with this in particular, Matt and I were thinking like, okay, you know, we've seen the rise of this digital humanities field. You know, we're training up students who are thinking yeah. in sort of richer, more nuanced ways about power and data and technology and like the things that it makes really awesome. Sure. Um, you know, like we, well, we did get lost on the way here, but hypothetically, <laughs> you know, we have Google Maps, well, right? It could tell us, you know, it could tell us where to go, right? Yeah. You know, that's like a, you know, it's transformed so many people's lives. Then on totally. the flip side, you have people collecting data on, all sorts of people, you know, everyone, us on Facebook, sure. um, you know, and all sorts of, um, in all sorts of different ways. And, you know, Matt and I were just asking, like, how could we sort of, sh sort of push this field towards using what we know about how these things work to sort of, to change things, to make things better, to sort of rebalance, um, you know, all of the power, the power differentials that we see around. Sure. Is it, are you on the end? So I guess I'm, I'm also really uh, concerned with, enthusiastic about um, just the fact that you all are talking to kids every day about, or, you know, young adults, mm -hmm. 18 to 21 ish, right? Um, and some grad school students. So mm -hmm. I guess, you know, people in their 20s in general um, about this. And it makes me think about, I remember I did a big data conference, this was years ago, at Wayne State in like downtown Detroit. It may have been, you know, 20. 13 or so this kid walked past i mean he was this i want to say he was you know maybe indian you know s somewhere in the general vicinity and you know i think he pulled me over because i was the only other like brown-faced guy there he's like hey what are you all doing here and there were signs up everywhere i'm like kid we're here at the big data this is the <laughs> biggest big data symposium in your region in my opinion at that time that you know the two good schools who had good programs were georgia tech I think Wayne State has some had some chops. So maybe it was a little bit after 2013. Anyway, my dates are mixed up. But this kid was in an IT program. He was a second-year student, which means he was at least 19. And he had never heard the term big with the term data. Mm. And that blew my mind. And I realized I, everyone that I was speaking to, we were sort of in a bubble uh, with regards to what the tool was, how it was being used, et cetera. And... Um, and it just started to make me think more and more about uh, how are we communicating to the future leaders, the future, you know, showrunners, company runners, how the world works. Mm. Because everything in this day and age sort of has a, a digital component because as we get better, we try to quantify, you know, our failures. Mm -hmm. um, and so day to day in the classroom, because you all are both in the classroom, mm -hmm. right? Are you and how many classes are you? I think it's important to contextualize. Like you're teaching what one or two classes per semester, mm -hmm. okay? And you've got fifty students. It's a real range, yeah. you know, a, twenty to twenty to hundred depends 20 to on the students. kind of the class, yeah. And are these kids coming to school sort of already aware of the pros and cons to, like, social media, for instance, or are they really starting from scratch? I mean, I think, like, the world wants to know, like, how much do they, young people know about, you know, do they know about Cambridge Analytica? Hmm. You know? That's a great question. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's such a good question. I mean, I think that they're they're sort of aware of it in general. Like, they mm. they sort of know, and especially the sort of parental surveillance of kids' activities. I think that's something that kids growing up these days oh, have to, to deal that. with all the time. You know, they sort of know things that happen on social media. Sure you know, could get, you know, have gotten people into trouble, sort of nothing is private, this kind of thing. They but, feel like that. I mean, I think that's just a reality that you grow up with when you, like, are a kid with a phone these days. Sure. Uh, but then you get to college, and I, I'm not sure that they have thought through sort of how, sort of how it rolls forward. Like, a, an example that I was talking to my students about that really hit home for them was, it was in the news a couple of weeks ago. So Amazon, you know, obviously Amazon gets a lot of applications for jobs, right? Sure. Um, and they can't process them quickly enough and they need to hire all these people, especially for the holidays, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. We'll sort of set aside Amazon's business practice. Sure, but they yeah. were like, we know what we can do. We can write an algorithm. We can like train a AI to mm -hmm. sift through the resumes and we'll sort of give them the resumes of the people who we have here already. We know they're good because they're working here. They haven't been fired yet. Um, and it'll just sort of do this like first cut 
you know, tell us who we should we should call. Sure. We, should, we should actually have you know a person call them up. Sure. And uh, it turned out, lo and behold, that the algorithm eliminated all women. It lim- eliminated all people of color. It because it was a, the way in which they had sort of trained the AI. They could actually say, okay, like what features are you looking for? Yeah. And it turns out that things like playing lacrosse got yeah. you put up in the list. <laughs> Get out of here. Yes. Yes. Being named Jared. Really? Um, playing lacrosse. That's such a dangerous name now, too, when I think about Subway. No, keep going. Jared anyway, so Jared and lacrosse get you up in the list. And if you went to a women's college or an HBCU, you went down in the pool. Really? Because these are the things, again, if like if your employee base is mostly white, mostly men, mostly well-educated, northeast elite, you know, lacrosse playing sure. type. Right. You know, and, you know, the, the computer doesn't know I'm going to oh look God. for this kind of person. But those are some sort of quantifiable features of the resumes and they had to i mean they realized that if, to their credit which i won't say all the time but to sure. their credit in this case they recognized that this They're was smart. a bad thing and yeah. they pulled it and they're like we can't use this anymore um but i like that example because it just shows how quickly something that is well-intentioned you know like oh we'll just you know hire people more quickly like who doesn't want that right yeah, I, I would have done the same thing uh sure but you don't know it just makes me think about my college girlfriend went to spelman so she went to a women's college and it was an hbc she <laughs> she would have been get it both ways first mm-hmm. one off yeah um and yeah her name had way more syllables than jared it was Catherine. anyway um shout out to Catherine. uh <laughs> it, just in case she's on facebook <laughs> anyway that's weird um so, yeah, I didn't even hear about that one. And the thing is, there's so many new sort of snafus coming out, especially with tech companies and how they try to use algos. And, you know, everyone hears right now, you know, that algorithms are weeding so many of us out. I actually haven't spent the time burrowing down and looking into what uh, systems are set in those algorithms to weed people out, because I just wonder how they get there um, in general. But yeah, I mean, it just, it takes me back. I think when I was coming into the workforce, which was like 2000, you basically had to, you know, go to JCPenney's, get a suit, but not too nice of a suit. And you basically had to just be like the tallest white guy you could be. I mean, no, <laughs> one's, no one was taller and whiter than me. Um, but that, I mean, that, that was a thing. And uh, it's funny, like all the good, the good jobs that I got when I first started were mostly from, from white women who were like, I'm going to give you... I'm here alone, and I'm going to give you a chance. Like, we were we were buddies. Mm. And I started in auto, so it was like a cigar-smoking, coffee-drinking, like, big-bellied guy kind of thing. Um, okay, so when those kids come in, so they... They, they don't really know. You you bring up that reference. Is is that how you all try to communicate to them? Is it is there a standard text for digital humanities, or do you all pick from current events to sort of make it real? Is that a thing? I mean... Well, I, I mean, I, I think our series is one of the standard texts that people look to, especially because it is sure. open, open and available. Um, and I think, you know, the thing that, are, like as Lauren was saying, students may come in with knowing about the dangers of data, but they what they may not also realize is like the power of how it can be triangulated to sure. to get at different aspects of one's identity. So they may think, sure. oh, it's okay to share things over here, but you know they don't realize how the corporations are sharing things with one another. How yeah. you know uh, Facebook owns Instagram and sort of like the the data is kind of being shared across uh, across companies right they don't follow the business of it i think the only way i got some of that stuff honestly is you know well i went to b school and so i was just following what company owns what yes so you all have to go down the rabbit hole of so it's slightly like a a business course and slightly a ethics course and slightly a tech course i think we have to be aware of those concerns and you know i think one of the issues is that a lot of the businesses aren't thinking about the kinds of things that humanists think of which is sort of who's represented in the data so one of the things that a humanistic perspective brings to questions about data is what's in the data how is it being collected how who's represented in it what are the gaps and absences in the data and that's not something that i think um is often thought about in the business community so that's Mm. something that humanists as we come to take on these issues of uh digital technology can sort of bring to the conversation to say well who collected your data what is the model that your algorithm is based on yeah and then can make interventions and and in our book you know we we the title of our, our introduction is a dh that matters and we argue that digital humanities as a field if it is going to make a difference it needs to intervene in cur- current debates sure. and it needs to bring a humanistic perspective to current debates 
Uh, yeah, I feel like that's sort of the, the pivot with tech uh, in general. Um, I mean, for those of us who are thinking about it, um, but the way you use that word humanist is interesting to me. Are you talking about humanist meaning um, professional subject matter experts, philosophers of sorts, academics in the humanities? Or are you talking about humanists in the way that sort of transhumanists, skeptics, atheists, et cetera, use the word humanist mm-hmm. or both? I, I don't, I mean, it's I, interesting. Like, I feel like language is so. It, our language, at least, is sort of expansive mm-hmm. relative to like to the other Latin-based languages, but it's still somewhat stifling, especially when you get into you know academic worlds. Like mm-hmm. I'm politically identified like as this liberal, but mm-hmm. I'm always attacking people. Like, You're ta- is neoliberalism good or bad mm-hmm. or what's what? Which one are who are you? Yeah. I'm like it's difficult. It depends on the context. So wait, what do you? I mean, I think it's I think it's both. I think okay, truly a uh, humanistic perspective based on language, uh, philosophy, and the arts is important to sure. bring into the conversation, sure. and but also that we need to be thinking of us as a kind of collective whole, as, sure. uh, uh, you know, humans, and what what is technology kind of, and, and big business kind of leaving out of the equation. You know, sure. you mentioned the... Um, the article by Laura Mandel on um, cultural analytics and and feminism and gender, you know, what she, her, her chapters about what she found when she went into the scholarship and, and looked at how is gender being conceived as a category in this, in this scholarship. And she found it was just very binary and that there were lots of problems with, with the way that it's based gender in general, gender. Yeah. How gender was being conceived of and that it was ignoring advances in feminist scholarship that had been made over the last, you know, 40 years. Sure. And so I think that's the kind of way digital humanists can start to intervene both in their own scholarship, but also into the wider conversations to say, what, what are, what is, take a step back. What is being represented here? How is it being represented and what perspectives and what, what's missing? No, even, uh, so my, the husband read that part and we've done a lot of work in sort of the, the LGBTQ space in general and he's like I don't think it touches on enough the uh, gender non-conforming and mm-hmm. people of trans experience and so yeah I mean the, like the world has changed so much even it, when he and I go places you know we just feel like you know the old outdated you know straight blonde couple <laughs> <laughs> seriously like anyway other stories I could tell stories out there about that, but um, yeah. So I think yeah, even even gender has has changed quite a bit uh, in our lifetimes, especially over the course of the past decade. I can't believe we're at the end of yet another decade. <laughs> so, but that makes me think about. I was gonna go. I said we were gonna go down the sort of hierarchy of you know oppression. Um, it's five fifty five. We've got to take a a quick break in about five minutes, but. Um, I wanted to go into this against cleaning before we then come back to sort of black and brown folks' mm-hmm. issues. Um, maybe we can fill up the next 30 minutes with, I got a whole bunch of black stuff to say. Uh, but when we think about what the data is, uh, and I think you mentioned earlier, sometimes corporations aren't thinking about how they bring in data. And you know, as a business guy, which is, you know, what I was first, I think I would, if I was trying to understand a thing, I would cast the widest net possible, mm-hmm. you know, catch all sorts of stuff and, you know, try to devise a system to, you know, pick the fish out. But um, that chapter, I think it's 23 on uh, against cleaning. Where, like, where are they, where are they going in that chapter? I think it's, it's actually interesting to put it in conversation with that first chapter, which is focused on the sort of what, what Laura calls the MF binary, which is sort of the shorthand for mm-hmm. male female, yeah. which itself has sort of um, been challenged. MF, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that works. Um, but no, but I, you know, the point that they make in that um, in that chapter is that you know there's so much information about people, about context, about you know history, about culture sure. that either doesn't fit into data, or that when it comes time to feed it into an algorithm, that you necessarily have to strip away so that you can get your your computational thing to work right. Yeah. Um, and so the impulse, which is like, okay, you know, let's see what we've got. Let's construct our categories. Let's put our information into these categories um, so that we can sort of move forward with our, our algorithm yeah. or what have you. You know, it's really important to stop and think every step of the way. You know, what information am I? What information is getting 
uh, sort of cleaned up here. Yeah. Um, how could that be valuable? And then if I proceed ahead with these categories, you know, what do I need to remind myself is no longer represented in the data that I'm working with? That and, could definitely become part of the algo. I mean, but the what do you need to remind yourself of could be extensive. Um, it actually makes me so. The, the thing is. I think everything is cultural at the end of the day. The way I look at tech is really in three very rigid categories. You have hardware, software, things we can touch, things we can't touch, and you have methodologies. So Mm -hmm. laws, tech, languages, I think, our oldest tech. So if you say language is our oldest methodology, I don't know, sticks and stones are our oldest hardware, and maybe fire is our oldest software, and we're here because we've been mashing those three things together over and over and over again, Um, then what we should be examining most is sort of what are the methods with which we communicate culture. Um, and it all just, you know, comes down to language and how many more boxes and vectors we can put things into. As the engineer, I was at first most fascinated with the great project chapter because I was thinking about, I think the first time that I realized we could automate, we could attempt to automate everything. And I used to think about automation like robotics until mm-hmm. I realized the work that I was doing in the early 2000s was I was really automating processes mm-hmm. that people used to do. Mm-hmm. And I realized it made those processes more productive, more profitable even. Mm-hmm. And then I was usually tasked uh, per my team with getting rid of those people and putting in some younger folk to monitor that process. And as the economics wonk in the room, that was sort of my transition from engineering, I started to realize that it was inefficient because they weren't participating in the productivity. You know, the lady who said blue paper for this, yellow paper for that, pink paper for this, and the copy machine, as we put boxes and vectors around it, um, we got rid of her. And then we hired, you know, some kid to look at it for 12 bucks. And then the boss usually, you know, pays himself. I'm always taking things back to economics. So, and again, I want to get back to the cultural stuff, but I'm curious to know what you all think about um, you know, the question, you know, should we organize everything? Not even, is it possible to organize everything? Wait, give me two seconds. We're going to take a, a quick break, and then we're going to come back with that question about should we organize everything, you know, at all? Is that mm-hmm. even, you know, a thing we should look into? <laughs> Do you wonder where you fit in these changing technological times? Is the system excluding you or including you? I'm James Felton Keith, inviting you to tune in to Inclusionism, a new code of equity, every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. I'll interview leading activists, academics, diplomats, and business people about what it truly means to be included in the 21st century. That's Inclusionism, every Sunday at 5.30 p.m. on WHCR 90.3 FM, The Voice of Harlem. So per, per the earlier question where, where we left off is, should we even be organizing everything? And as you, as you both try to answer that question, I'd love to know what you think and then if there's a broader argument in academia about if we should be organizing everything, you know, from a data standpoint, from an algorithmic standpoint. I mean, I think it's a... wherever you want. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, I think it's, it's such a tough question. I mean, I think the important thing to remember is that you know, when you try to operationalize something or when you try to train an algorithm or, you know, some sort of something to to automate something, you know, Mm. you need to somehow reduce this really rich human experience into data. And, you know, everyone's different, right? I mean, this is one of your platforms too, right? And, you know, one of the things that you need to be really attentive to is that not everyone wants to be turned into a data point. You know, it can really inflict harm, right? You know, you can just think about undocumented immigrants, right? Like if you know where someone lives who's undocumented and that gets turned into data on the one hand to be like, oh, hey, you know, let's send resources to, you know, let's provide some assistance. Let's do some meal service, right? Like that's valuable data to say, where does this person live? On the other hand, that exact same bit of information in the wrong hands can be used to, right, exactly, you know? (laughs) And so, and this is, it's like sort of this paradox of exposure where again, like data can be really powerful. You can say, you know, look at these people, they need help. And that exact same information in the wrong hands, you know, same thing 
talking about gender, you know, trans people, yeah. right? For on the one hand, might have a real reason to be counted to say, like, look at me, I exist. Yeah. You know, I'm real in the world. I um, mean, on the other hand, some people, you know, don't want violence brought to their door, you sure. know, might want to try to pass. You just, you never know, right? And having sort of a blanket, you know, going through that process where you're saying, okay, here's a thing we could save time, make money, you know, do it easier, faster, even better. Um, you know, all of these processes so far involve this, you know, this process of reduction as the first step. Yeah. And you need to think so hard, you know, when you do that, who's doing it, whose interests, um, yeah. you know, are being served in that process. And I think something that scholars are only starting to think about it's like sure you know we trust us right you know if we've collected data for our project we know that you know we're going to take good care of it but what happens if it gets out of our hands you know yeah. you know what if our you know for a long time i worked at a state institution nothing no email i wrote was private right. none of my data was private right you know right. even if i could vouch for it someone else might not so right. you know it gets complicated really quickly um so i guess that's not really an answer to your question but no, i think but that's again good. like that's why we're here right to say like look you know yeah. these aren't easy questions no they're know? not no we're trying to just get there were you well i mean i think i i go back to the example lauren cited earlier of amazon basically replicating its own yeah. um biases and you know biased kind of construction of its workforce by not paying enough critical attention to its own algorithms and so something that i think D DHers, which is what we kind of call ourselves, oh, digital like humanist okay. DHers are arguing yeah, for is a, <laughs> and not not alone, but we're arguing for um, a newish field called like critical algorithm studies. Sort of like how are the mm. algorithms constructed? How can we pay attention to them? And when we think about the question you asked about, should everything be organized? You know, we have to think about what is it that's being organized. Digital humanists work with archives, and mm. you know, you have to ask, well, what is in the archive? What's not in the archive? Who mm -hmm. constructed the archive? Um, this semester, I'm co-teaching with Kelly Josephs an intro to digital humanities class from a Caribbean studies perspective. And one of the things we're looking at is, you know, when you look at um, the history of colonialism, the history of slavery, the archives were actually dealing with these these historical constructs have certain voices represented and other voices not represented. So totally. you can't just, when you take that point Lauren raised of everything becomes a data point, it's not as simple as that because data, the data was created by people with certain perspectives. And that's what digital humanists do is we say where, how, why was the data constructed. It's sort of getting back to that point before the, the data was cleaned, especially in the past, and asking about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah. Well, no, we know that there's some, uh, <laughs> I, I don't necessarily even know that it's a, uh, it's always just about ethics or, or the ethical problem. I, and I only said it to correct myself as I was thinking out loud, like we know that there are some ethical issues, but um, it's not always the case. You know, I've, I often spend time talking to people about how engineers of sorts don't, they mean well. Mm -hmm. Um Engineers really just exist. I mean, being an engineer to sort of root cause and error proof. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the only thing that we all learn consistently, whether we're mechanical people or electrical people or chemical people. Mm -hmm. And um, per culture being the new thing that we're trying to quantify and distribute, uh, or the language that represents most of the culture as best as it can, um, it's becoming increasingly difficult to do root cause analysis, right? so that things can be error-proof. And, um, yeah, I think that's the real work. I think the interesting thing about, even when I hear the term digital humanities or for the DHers, you know, when I first started hearing that a little while ago, I just thought, that's like everything. They're just saying, <laughs> we, we want to talk about everything. <laughs> everything and nothing is in our purview. There's no place that no door I can't kick in. Yeah. I'm like, what department do they sit in? <laughs> and like, oh, they're English people. You know, so... Now, I, I get it. Um, I guess I am of the the group who I try to be a bit practical in assuming that because uh, business people, error proofers of sorts, are mm -hmm. upon us, whether they call themselves engineers or not, they are trying to operationalize everything no matter what. Like, I used to work early in my career at Hewlett Packard, mm -hmm. and they had a business process there called IT service management. Mm -hmm. And another business process called IT 
information library, ITIL. And it was like this massive methodology that ran amok through the whole industry, I think in a good way. Mm -hmm. And it trained everyone to be process engineer, whether they were an old guy or a young guy. And, and there were only a few gals. And that was tragic. But anyway, the company fell apart. And I think the majority of the chief information officers that went everywhere else came from that company as it started to unravel at the end of the 2000s. And it was this treasure trove of process people. And I feel like as they spilled over into the rest of industries, everything just became about process. And so I try to look at the world and go, business is going to do try, attempt to do this no matter what. On one hand, you know, we want to hold them accountable. On the other hand, we know that there's going to be some, some fallout. And so I'm constantly thinking about how we argue about um, indemnification for use of data in certain places mm -hmm. and also you know, flagrant and fraudulent use of it in other places and how we sort of take care of people on the back end knowing that the use of tech has leapfrogged us, especially when we get into sort of biotech. And you know, I think that's the most interesting place to me. Um, so as you all talk about these fields and try to educate, um, well, each other and then educate the, the young people about these, um, I'd be interested to know, are you all regularly in contact with people in politics, like people who are making policy decisions, setting policy decisions? I mean, like, are you all as individuals or colleagues that you know? Are folks coming to you all saying, how can I do what I, what I can do? No? <laughs> if it's a quick no, just that's fine. I mean, I, was, I wish the answer were yes. Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that Matt and I are trying to do with this book is sort of explain how a lot of these historical projects and yeah. critical thinking and all these theories about how things work in the world, like how they really are useful. Sure. Um, you know, I will say that in terms of like old school, like union organizing, like that's a place where, yeah. um, you know, like there's definitely a place in our work for that. And I think that's something that Do they reach most, out. Oh yeah. They reach out. I mean, oh, I, it's a, it's a big deal. I mean, moving from uh, New York city to Georgia, which is one of those right to work States. Sure. So, um, so all the organizing has to be uh, sort of independent. Uh, yeah. Right. to work means for the folks that are not familiar, don't work. But anyway, yeah, go ahead. Well, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, it means like like New York State has a has a really rich tradition, right? Of sure. like teachers unions and in particular, and advocating for all this really good stuff for faculty um, and staff. Although you know we can get into the weeds Shh. in that uh, if you want to, yeah. but it's been interesting to see you know coming from a place where that's not taken for granted, right? Where you're not starting with like oh you just check the box in your paycheck to have your you know yeah. five dollars or whatever go to the union. Like that sure. just doesn't happen naturally. Yeah. Um, that process needs to. Um, you know, it takes a lot of work and, you know, feet on the ground. You know, I would say boots on the ground, but it's actually just like feet in hallways, right? Feet in hallways, okay. Um, you know, you meeting people. You much boots. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, it's warm. It's warm down there. It's warm, right. And, Sandals. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, so that's been something that's interesting that's sort of more like, you know, bottom up rather than top down. Sure. I mean, yeah. Well, and, and unions are increasingly smaller. I was just having a, I don't know, a lunch sort of argument with the chief economist at AFL-CIO about how they need to be looking at data from a collective bargaining standpoint. And so one of my old orgs, well, they're still around, is the data union and half of our, I was just with a bunch of SEIU people on Saturday, yesterday, in the Bronx, trying to get them to start having conversations above wages. I was talking to them about universal basic income based on data, and they had this whiteboard of things that they were ideas that they were writing. And the way the woman at the board interpreted what I was saying was universal wage income or some basic wage. She, anyway, she wrote the word wage and said, "I'm not talking about wages. I'm talking about the fact that a guy in the transportation union just told me that American Airlines turned the Wi-Fi on for free on those guys, and they don't have the economics." available to them to argue for what that data is worth. Mm. And so I try to bring in a, a former chief privacy officer at WPP, the biggest data broker conglomerate on the planet, and CIO at Barney's, who confirm any uh, record about you. So being any two columns on a spreadsheet is worth about $15 to WPP. And Barney's will pay about 50 cents per amendment to keep adding to your existing record. 
And as we tumble down that rabbit hole, I said, you know, you can easily do that math and figure out what you should be negotiating with American Airlines for if you've got 30,000 people in D.C. at the big airports. But I was, I was shocked when you just said that unions were reaching out to you because up here, they're, they're just not, like, not enough. It's not a conversation that they're having. I think a lot of the working folks and the leaders from that group, and so that bleeds over into pretty much all the progressive politicians, are coming to this argument very late. And it's one that's moving so fast that um, it's sort of leapfrogging our general understanding of how people should be paid, what they're owed, and but also what sort of rights they have mm. to mm-hmm. privacy and protection, how they yeah. enforce that. So yeah, you just caught me off guard. I was shocked. And I, I see it at all levels. I mean, I'm, I'm the parent of a kid in the New York City public, oh, two kids in the New York pu- City yeah. public school systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a huge need for literacy of for, of kids to understand their own practices and for mm-hmm. schools to take account of this stuff. I mean, you asked about our politicians talking to us. Where I've been talking to them is through my PTA. You know, I'm a co-president of my my PTA, PTA, and yeah. um, you know that's where we're getting involved. And you that's know, there's a, it's it involves all sorts of issues that are in some ways unrelated to digital humanities. But sure. like I'm thinking about issues like testing and opting out of testing and the data that comes out of testing. But in a lot of ways, it is related to things like the digital digital humanities because you know it's about quantification data information issues of privacy sometimes surveillance and and testing yeah i mean when you are again when you all say digital humanities in my mind it's like you're trying to quantify everything everything that we talk about all culture we talk about you are trying to quantify that and that's no that totally involves all these kids okay well i would just say i mean i think i would would say trying to quantify is part of it maybe among academics we are definitely more than most academics excited to explore technology like we want to do that we mm-hmm, we mm-hmm. we welcome in a lot of ways technology into the classroom which a lot of academics are like nope i don't want to have anything to do with it sure. but we're like we're, we're we're not saying no at the beginning we want to explore it sure. but i think we want to do it in a kind of critic self-critical and self-reflexive way so we want to ask sure. questions as we're doing it sure so we're not we're not like just like yeah quantify 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 we're like let's think about how we can quantify and do it in ways that are um, ask questions about the quantifying process itself as we're doing it. If that sure. makes sense. No, 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 it totally makes sense. I mean, look, this is a it's a brand new world when we say we're going to try to <laughs> quantify the human experience, and every time the human experience changes, that a ripple effect of data points occur. Right? It's like living in. The, it's a weird, like, I like a physics analogy for everything. I feel like if there's not a good physics analogy, <laughs> it's not a thing. But that's just me. <laughs> and it's like living in this sort of constantly growing multiverse. And every time you move to the left or the right, another thing happens. And then you mm-hmm. got to quantify that again, mm-hmm. which seems nearly impossible mm-hmm. to do. But um, anyway, so as you go, it's interesting you uh, take us into sort of the, the school system, the the secondary school system, at least, I think, about this city, which is the largest school system, also the most segregated school mm-hmm. system. Uh, not that this is a uh, a staple in the the not the sixth chapter, the second chapter um, of the book, but um, you know, I said we were going to get get back here, so I want to try to circle back there on um, uh, what is it called, like. Black digital, wait. Toward a black digital humanities, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, Sophia yeah. Nobles. Yeah, uh-huh. towards a, quit- a critical black digital humanities. Mm-hmm. So this makes me think about so many of my friends. I have a, a friend uh, named Tawana who runs a big um, sort of cyber and surveillance hub in Detroit who is hopefully publishing a book called Black Data at the end of next year, mm-hmm. which is um, really interesting. But, uh, I mean, yeah, what's... Where, where are they going in in this chapter? Uh, yeah, what what can we do? I don't know. The, I, I just had a, like a brain fart a bit because I don't. No. I yeah, yeah. So you know, yeah. this is this is it's a super interesting piece. So this is by uh, Sophia Noble, um, okay. who actually is an information studies scholar, and she wrote a book called Algorithms of Oppression, actually, which is yeah. about Google. 
Yeah, she's and about um, yeah, yeah, yeah. That so book is everywhere. Right? Yeah, I know it's amazing. Um, and so this is actually this is like one of her, you know, side projects. You know, which is yeah. about like you know once you leave, or actually not once, but it's like how you can't just leave it at Google, right? Right. right. Um, it's this idea that you know we think of our internet existence as pretty self-contained, right? Like on our phones, on our computers. Maybe we connect to the internet, we search for something, you know, we encounter those algorithms, but. Yeah. She takes this really uh, sort of material approach and geographic approach and is like, look, you know, these technologies are part of physical systems, infrastructure systems, right? Um, These devices are made by people and they're made by people who are exploited. Um, These systems privilege people in the global north. Um, We have fast internet, we have reliable machines, things like this. Um, And if you look at how these systems are connected, they actually replicate all these historical patterns of exploitation and um, enslavement, honestly. You know, it's, you know, the history of capitalism is one that is premised on this relationship between the colonial north and um, the south. And she's like, look, this is still happening, right? Like, you know, where do our, the the raw materials for the, our devices come from, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, They come from countries in Africa where, you know, people are being exploited in order to create devices for, you know, us to use a profit from totally. in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and that's a, you know, and she's like, look, you know, this is a question of, uh, it's a humanistic question because it's a question about people. It's a question about capitalism. Yeah. So it's a question about how money and profit motivates and perpetuates these systems of exchange. It's an ecological question, right? Because um, you get, you know, when you're enmeshed in these global, uh, these global economic pathways that involve extracting raw resources, um, you know, this has an, an ecological cost, human health cost on the people who are extracting them. Totally. And, uh, you know, I, I, I love this piece because, you know, talking about systematizing, you know, like, can we operationalize everything? It's like, you know, I don't need, we're all already part of the system, right? That in right, some ways, in it's, or we're, like, it's all been set in motion. It's been going on for hundreds of years, thousands mm-hmm. of years, right? Right, before um, we got to the digitization. Before we got to the digitization and so many of the systems that we don't realize that we're sort of replicating just by our, in our daily lives, yeah. are in fact replicating these sort of larger systems of yeah. power and access and who's got what, who's got things and who doesn't. No, I think, yeah, you're totally right. Even, uh, I mean, I think, you know, as as humans, as sort of system engineers of, of sorts who are trying to design more ways to stay alive, it is, I don't want to call it natural. I'm not, you know, the guy who believes in, in nature as I understand everything as being real and in the physical, in physical space and time. So I won't go into whether humans have nature or not. But uh, what I will say just seems, I think, uh, easiest or, you know, obvious is to take a system that already exists and add new tech to it, which is what we have been doing. I think even, you know, when capitalism emerged and feudalism fails, really a bunch of monarchs saying we can't distribute goods well enough where the peasants won't rise. So we'll allow new nobles to proliferate. And they mostly built, you know, boats, guns, and clothes. Spice trades are more story, but they were really traded based on boats, guns, and clothes. Mm. And a bunch of people got rich. And a bunch of good stuff happened. A bunch of bad stuff happened. Slavery happened. Wars happened, et cetera, et cetera. But um, I think the one reason I'm optimistic about these times and you know things like the digital humanities proliferating is I, I think I see a rare opportunity to decentralize and democratize every system that used to exist. Um, even the the ones that are um, uh, talked about in those, you know, algos of, of uh, oppression, whether we're talking about the very systems, you know, like the the copper and the steel that are used to create the hard metal boxes mm-hmm. in the server farms, or whether we're talking about the most natural resource that folks are using, which is data. Evidence of you, I think, is ultimately what incentivizes any of this stuff to exist. I think even... You know, the underwear ads that I see on the subway in New York uh, for women of all colors and shapes really just says to me that women finally exist in a way that they haven't previously. Uh, and literally, when I ride the three train from 145th Street down, I'm sort of shocked. Like, is are we just living in these crass times? They got all these naked women here and the underwear matches the skin tone. <laughs> and... No, the reality is we just know that, you know, all underwear isn't, um, you know, white, cotton, and coney, um, like an old Madonna video. I mean, to be crass about it, I didn't curse, (laughs) you know, like the station's going to listen to this and go, you're on the borderline. (laughs) But 
the reason that exists is because we see those people in a way that we never have before. And what I'm most concerned about is for people in the digital humanities to start using language about data hmm. as though it is this natural resource and that it is more granular than even the the commodities that we think about right now that you know the copper and the steels mm. etc to build the systems like the fuel to those systems are they've all been incentivized to mm -hmm. exist by us and i think if we start to allocate uh value ownership and not just from a financial economic standpoint mm -hmm. but also from a political standpoint mm -hmm. to say that because we see you have some intrinsic value per mm -hmm. your data mm -hmm. if we can say that that intrinsic value is only built because of your exchange of data or information with the people around you, then what you're really doing, even if you're the most prolific one here, mm -hmm. you're really validating, validating community. So like if Beyonce makes a bunch of money because she can run around and do like big band songs from HBCUs in Hills, which mm -hmm. I can't, she's probably worth, you know, at least twice as much as me. But she's validating my culture because this is stuff that we used to do every Sunday, every Saturday rather, for football games at school. And so that means we're worth some of that, too. She's probably overpaid. Jeff Bezos is probably worth $50 million, but he definitely ain't worth $150 billion. No. And he's also definitely not worth making sole decisions about the way the company moves forward. Maybe some executive decisions, sure. But I think we have this rare opportunity, and the window will only stay open for so long, where we, I think, get to make formidable arguments about who has a say yeah. about how these corporations, which are bigger than a lot of nation states yep. at this point, how yes. they move. And I think if we can design in law that shows that we are the owners hmm. of this evidence of our personhood mm -hmm. per the digital humanities, then we will eventually win. I think we are in a much better place now than we were 500 years ago when feudalism was at play. The mm -hmm. only reason I'm sitting here on the radio talking to you all and the only reason you're here and you know not wearing boots uh, worker boots. <laughs> the only reason we didn't all die in child uh, labor uh, is because times are relatively better than they have been. But we got a long way to go. Yeah. Well, there. You know, there's that. But it's you all's job to take us there. Anyway. I, ahead, yeah. We'll see. I mean, there's. <laughs> you know, there's that saying that you know, if the if the product is free, you sure. are the product. Sure. You know, and um, I think there there are some grounds for optimism right now. There's a lot to be worried about. Sure. I mean, there's you know. We are simultaneously, as you say, living in this moment where it is easier to have your voice heard than it has ever been before. Sure. Um, you can set up a podcast, set up a blog, set up a website with so much more ease. The means of, of uh, media distribution have been radically shifted. Mm -hmm. At the same time, we are at this moment of platform capitalism. We are at a moment where disinformation campaigns are easier to run than ever. And it that all is scary. So, you know, I do think you're right that there's there's something to be hopeful for right now. What you're talking about, I think in the end, you know, I mean, I kind of I'm going to sound like Elizabeth Warren here for a second. Go there, like, there's go like, Elizabeth. You know, regulation of <laughs> the here. social media companies is needed. I mean, you know, the fact that you have Bezos and Bill Gates, you know, with their, you know, however many billions and billions yeah. of dollars, sure. um, it's it's insane, and I think it's it's all it's built out of the 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 capital the that we mom, all yeah. give to the to the right. uh, social media platforms through our own contributions. And another point, just that, to yeah. get back on this collective organizing topic, is that, you know, the corporations actually, you know, a lot of them have been given the opportunity to show that they could, you know, do the right thing. And, you know, for instance, the, you know, Google last year, I don't know if you think back to when there was that walkout over the yeah. gender and racial discrimination at Google yeah. and Love people internally yeah. collected data. There was a, a sort of a collective group that had decided what the platform would be. Sure. Um, you know, they brought the data to Google HQ and said, look, these are the problems. This is what we want. Yep. Um, and not only did Google not respond and hire antitrust or, uh, you know, anti-organizing uh, lawyers to sure. try to derail future efforts, um, but they retaliated against the individuals who had led it, right? And so, you know, it's really... I just think it's, we need to be so careful when taking the present as already given to us, right? Saying we're starting now rather than say, let's ask ourselves how we got here. What sure. needs to be changed? You know, 
Um, do things need to be regulated? Do things need to be broken up? Because certainly things are not working well, you know, per uh, Dr. Noble's book, right? You sure, know, yeah. the Google itself, you know, where most people go for their information is horribly racist, right? If you type in her big example is yeah. black girls versus white girls, sure. you know, white girls, you get wholesome stock photography and black girls, you get porn sites. Or it was until Google interceded and said, oh, it was a glitch in the system. Now we've fixed it, right? Well, yeah, the glitch in the system was they were going on, right, previous searches. It's just like how, you know, <laughs> I think about political campaigns use reddit reddit is actually a hack for the google algorithm mm -hmm. so you can flood the internet with junk so that when you actually start publishing real deal stuff on a candidate um the the goodness sort of rises, or what you want to rise rises to the top and because black women in particular and black girls were fetishized and the people who had access to the internet first were men who were fetishized them they were looking for them in porn sites and those ips got stored and if at any point where we start to build a system on top of a system where the the core inputs are um are are, are sexist or racist are you know fall under one religious line then you know we're just going to see that stuff magnified i just wanted to i know you all get that but i wanted to sort of explain that a bit more for for the listeners um, but yeah, I will say this thing about Elizabeth. Yeah, and I love Elizabeth Warren. I remember going to Netroots, and you know, like I wanted her to run for president in twenty, you know, thirteen. But um, anyway, what I will say about the breaking up of institutions, I definitely think they need to be regulated. I think parts of them need to be broken and siloed. But I think the, the interesting problem that we have on our hands that is not like the oil industry of the turn of the last century is that the, the world is a supply chain at this point. And we have big supply chains in different sectors. Even when we go into pharmaceuticals, like when I look at pharmaceutical benefits managers, those are the data brokers of an even more interesting set of data than what Google has access to, even though they're trying to play in that space. And to break the supply chain means the... Uh, the price of goods that we consume for something increasing towards zero goes back up. I think the only thing that has stayed expensive in, in this space and time has been real estate. And so healthcare is more expensive, I think, because of the real estate it occupies. Education is more expensive, I think, because of contracts and securita securitization excuse me, of real estate that it occupies. And so I do think that it takes a bit of a 21st century approach mm -hmm. to structure legislation around these companies but we should look at them as something similar to or as big as sovereigns because google has essentially experienced what hong kong is experiencing right mm -hmm. now and the problem is because they look at everything within their purview as an asset that they own similar to the chinese government they lawyered up with with ip lawyers who i also think have run amok talking to us too much about privacy in the individual context and the way they would in the institutional context. I think privacy lawyers have totally run amok. They don't talk about protection enough. I go to data protection mm -hmm. conferences mm -hmm. and it's all lawyers here talking about privacy. I'm like, get out of here. You don't belong here. You use the wrong language mm. and we should all be suing you all because you're in our you're in our way. Mm. Um, I'm trying to avoid cursing. Can I, can I say yes, one thing though? Is, you know, I think yeah. one point and it's a very simple point but I think it's crucial and describes what the digital humanities can contribute to the conversation and yes. others as well. Yeah. It's that technology is not neutral. You know, the, the right. platforms we use, the, the algorithms that are part of it, it's people, we, as humans, we tend to think that because it's computational, because it's algorithmic, because it's, you know, comes from the computer, that it is, it doesn't have a point of view. Right. And I think in the digital humanities, we're trying to ask, what is the point of view of this technology, of this platform, yes. of this conversation as it comes to us? And how can we kind of intervene? How can we show where, what it's, you know, sometimes it's biases and in, in Sometimes they're intentional, sometimes unintentional. Yeah. But what is its point of view? At, because it's not neutral. No, you're right. And, uh, it's not. But I think the biggest problem there, uh, at least in my opinion, is the fact that we talk about technology as being adjacent to or other than ourselves. Mm. And I think we should just be talking about it as an extension of ourselves. So if our oldest tech are 
again, language, mm-hmm. fire, which which we create and we communicate how to do over and over again via language, and then tools like mm-hmm. sticks or wheels, et cetera, mm-hmm. that again we build and got better at building because of fire and language. It all goes back to extension of us. Language is not a physical tech. Mm-hmm. It's not a software, but it does come directly from us. And so as everything comes directly from us, I think if we talk about these things as extensions of humanity, if we talk about the value of our cream that rises to the top as a derivative of the community that they come from, I think we're in a, a good place. But we don't right now. I think it is a bit wonky and philosophical, but uh, per the, the premise of inclusionism, what this show is, we never really talk about on the show, but the inclusionism is a, is a biopolitical framework that really says three things, that you have an intrinsic value, tech doesn't honor that in the way it exists in the way it exists right now but number one that you have an intrinsic value number two that we only derive it from interactions with each other i think that's a bit of a radical thing because i'm saying if you existed in an empty white space and there was no friction you have to react to anything that there's no tangible value there so if we talk about value as being a tangible thing which sometimes we don't we talk about in an abstract way then i'm saying you both have to exist at least or some other obstacle has to exist for you to at least react to for value to proliferate, for friction to proliferate. And the third piece is that uh, we are all entitled to some equity in the value that proliferates from those interactions. And I think if that becomes our, our ethic, if it's not what it was, which is all men are created equal, which I think is uh, silly in general, then um, I think we start to get to a better place. And, you know, that said, I'm, I'm hopeful about uh, where we're going just because, well, you all are, are doing this and, and writing, you know, books in a irregular uh, dimension <laughs> for a trade book, at least. Uh, and, and, you know, that, that we're starting to have these conversations more and more. Um, but, I, yeah, I do. I think the, the most di- difficult thing, when I, I ran for office in 2018, I talked about data a lot. And people mm. were like, what? Mm. Who cares? Now I, and then I, I talked about value a lot as well. And now I talk about justice and ownership. Mm. That's it. Mm-hmm. But as an entrepreneur who's used to taking a product to market, I had to take it to market, see it fail, see people tell me what they want. Like, I wish you came here talking about justice. Mm. I wish you came here talking about something tangible. So we came back and now we're running and we're raising a lot more and we're, you know, in a real head to head race with an old incum- incumbent who hasn't written any laws and, you know, couldn't spell digital humanities, unfortunately, because um, because we're talking about technological things as if they are spiritual things or cultural things. Um, so that said, I mean, you know, we've we've run on a bit past 630, but um, anything anywhere else you you all want to go? Like, what, what else do you have coming up? What's new? <laughs> that we can look for on the internet. We can. We're gonna post some more stuff on the on the website. What do you wanna? Well, anything? we've we've got well the the book the debates in the digital humanities books continue. Um, yeah. So we have a couple books coming out. The next one is gonna be about the digital Black Atlantic. So looking at um, sort of digital humanities and a global context, but focused around the exchange yeah. in the Atlantic, right? With a Black perspective. Um, we have another one about institutions coming up um what does that mean institutions? like you know uh what does it mean to try to do this kind of work if you are at a research university if you're at a liberal arts college if you're at a tribal college if you're at a regional comprehensive you know all of these different constraints just different you types of academic institutions different types of academic institutions profit. yeah yeah mm-hmm. yeah so um, a lot of academics who go into pri- i know a lot of princeton economists who go to microsoft they're mm-hmm. trying to quantify all sorts of stuff with data mm-hmm. so but so not them not academic the, institution. Yeah, I, mostly I could, I actually, I, we don't, we didn't edit those two books, so they're in our series, they're coming out. Okay. Um, and Do you all edit uh, the whole series, though? You all? We edit the, the series. Okay. Yeah. We edit and, the series, yeah. And then we've got, we're, we're actually just reviewing uh, potential submissions for the next version of our book, which will be two th- D- Debates on Digital Humanities 2021. Okay. So, but that's a that's a couple of years off. Your book is coming out. Yeah, uh, book coming out in the spring. Data, data feminism. feminism. Um, although you can read the draft online, it's available on the MIT Press website. And uh, that's gonna be a big. I feel like, like a mainstream. Like this is sort of mm-hmm. nerdy and not mainstream. 
but that language for the title mm -hmm. yeah that, it's a it's intended as a trade book so yeah and you're what excited prepared to like tour the country and world talking about feminism and the the digital aspects of that or data aspects maybe non-digital data i don't know what are you yeah yeah we're we're really excited it? i feel yeah. i feel excited about it i mean this book is also about sort of what we can do right like that's yeah. you know given what we know about data and its inequities that mm. we see every day you know as you know i teach in a data science program right now i'm teaching students you know like how can i teach them to do better to make things better um oh wait you say you're Emory. I just keep thinking about Rachel Cummings was on our board at the data uh, the data union. That's who was down at Georgia Tech when I was there. I, was, I went way off. People were like, "What is he?" Doing? Anyway, <laughs> I'm acting like we're just sitting on the couch talking. But I know Matt, you were getting. I felt like you were getting ready to say something. No, no, no. I mean, yeah. just um, but just to remind people, if anyone is interested in all this, you can go to um, dhdebates.gc.cuny.edu and yeah. see all the books that have been published in yeah. uh, this series so far um, and interact with them, leave comments and stuff like that. So, yeah. You all make me want to write. Anyway, I, I have no time to write anything, and I'm jealous, really, because I just want to have this conversation 24 hours a day until I'm blue in the face. But I have to have a bunch of other conversations. Well, um, I guess if, if that's it, you know, thank you all for joining us. I hope that uh, we can keep the conversation going. You're here in New York, yes, so yeah. we'd love to Absolutely. you know, talk more. I feel like we only scratched the surface here. When you all do the next book, I know you mentioned on Twitter sometime in the spring. That's true. Maybe we can get you both back in the spring and some more people. Maybe we can knock off three hours. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe we can have like a pizza in here. They, they try to say don't eat in here. But anyway, I, clearly I'm drinking coffee. I'm going to get in trouble. They're going to see it. Um, so thank you. Well, thank you for, for joining me. And um, thank you for the work you're doing. Though. I feel like, you know, you all are the backbone of the political arguments that we're going to get to make, if we get to make any of them at all. So... Thank you so much for yeah. having us. We really appreciate the opportunity yeah. to speak with you and appreciate your questions and, and your interest and the work you're doing as well. so many more. <laughs> so yeah, many thank more. you like, so really much. Like we can keep going there. All right, so if I can only cue the music up, we will get out of here. But uh, thanks, everybody. Until next time. Um,